Now, if you're just joining us, we are in the middle of a series called Foundations, Seeing Jesus Through the Old Testament. And what we are endeavoring to do here is take the Old Testament and create a sort of lens through which we see the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is so unbelievably critical to do. In fact, to illustrate this, I want to take you to one of the verses that we're going to be camping out on a little bit today and talking about a little bit today that is literally one of the weirdest verses in all of the Bible if you don't understand Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. Before Jesus began his ministry, his cousin John the Baptist was out baptizing people by the Jordan River and preparing the way for Jesus. He was kind of rolling out the red carpet for the Messiah. Well, one day, Jesus himself comes along. This is before he had done any miracles, before any teaching, before any of that. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, John looks at Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just a few verses later, uh, verse 35 reads this way, The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When Jesus was passing by, he said again, Look, the Lamb of God. Now, that's a weird thing to say, right? Look at Jesus, God's sheep, God's goat. I mean, what if we called Jesus God's cat or God's dog or God's giraffe or the rhinoceros of God? Very strange, don't you think? Very strange to call someone God's lamb. But if you were a Jew in the first century, if you were part of the nation of Israel, when John the Baptist calls out, look, the Lamb of God, everyone would have had a crystal clear picture of what John was talking about. Because they understood this very critical event in the history of the nation of Israel that became a defining kind of characteristic of who they were. And this event was the exodus from Egypt, after God freed his people after 430 years of slavery. And let's retell that story once again, just so we're familiar. After about 400 years, the nation of Israel had been crying out for a deliverer, a redeemer. God, get us out of slavery in Egypt. They were in indentured servitude there, and they were abused. In fact, there was this moment where Pharaoh had called for the slaughter of every Hebrew child under two years old. They were told to make bricks and not given any materials to make them with. And, and, and I mean, just abused and mistreated and enslaved by the nation of Egypt. So finally, God calls a man named Moses from an, an area called Midian. And he says, Moses, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses' response is very interesting, and uh, he says, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In fact, twice in Exodus chapter 6, he says, I have faltering lips. In other words, I have a speech impediment is quite literally what Moses says. And he says, Can I take my brother Aaron with me? So Moses' brother Aaron goes with him, and, they, and God uses Moses and Aaron, these two brothers who are in their 80s at this point, to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh looks at them and goes, 
who in the world sent you? You two 80-year-old guys coming to let my free labor go? Yeah, I'm not doing what you're saying. And so Moses and Aaron respond, I am has sent us. I am who I am, Yahweh, the King of Israel and the King of the universe. Pharaoh says, no way. So Moses says, well, here's the deal. God's really serious about this request, and it's not really a request, but he's really serious. And so what he's going to do is begin to send plagues on the nation of Egypt in order to convince you to do exactly what he says. The first plague is the plague of blood. Moses raises his staff, dunks it in the Nile River, and all the water in all of Egypt turned to blood, even water in jars in people's homes. All the fish in the Nile River and the ponds and whatever died, and there was this stench that rose up. And you would have thought that would be enough to get Pharaoh's attention, but it doesn't. In fact, after each one of these plagues, the first nine, there's this refrain, this chorus that, that the author of Scripture keeps coming back to. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he did not do what the Lord asked him to do. So the next plague was frogs. Frogs everywhere in Egypt, crawling on people's houses, in people's homes. Could you imagine how gross that is if you were to walk into your house and your entire floor was covered in frogs? That is disgusting. Doesn't get Pharaoh's attention. He hardened his heart and did not let God's people go. The next plague was gnats and then flies. And then all the livestock in Egypt died. And then God sent boils on people. And every single time, Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not let God's people go. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 15, God says this to Pharaoh through Moses. He says, For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. In other words, God is saying to him, I could have obliterated you. I could have erased you from history, but I didn't. I'm being patient with you. I'm being gracious toward you. I'm trying to get your attention, but you're not paying any attention. And so the plagues keep coming. The next one was hail, hail all over Egypt. The next one was locusts. Could you imagine that nasty sound that locusts make all over Egypt? And by this point, Pharaoh's advisors in Exodus 10, verse 7, they, they essentially say, and this is the New Lucas translation, Pharaoh, let the darn people go already. Please let them go. But Pharaoh also this time hardened his heart and would not let the people go. In fact, he looked at Moses and he says, Moses, get out of my face. This is again the New Lucas translation, Exodus 11, verse 29. Get out of my face. And if you ever come before me again, you will die. I don't ever want to see your face again. And Moses looks at him and says, Well, my friend, you're right about one thing. You're never going to see my face again. And Moses left. Nine plagues to get Pharaoh's attention, to get his people out of slavery. And Pharaoh each time hardened his heart and did not let the people go. Now, the next thing that God does, and we're going to read it together in Exodus chapter 12, the next thing that God does might feel pretty drastic to you. But let me use an illustration 
to help you understand it's maybe not quite as drastic as it would seem. Let's say that Kaya had misbehaved at school. She never misbehaves, by the way. She's the most obedient child, but that's not part of the story. Let's say she misbehaved at school, and let's say her teacher held her afterwards for detention. I know they don't put kindergartners in detention, but again, let's just say. Now, I might understand, right? I might understand at first because, you know, Kaya misbehaved and there needs to be consequences for her actions and she stays after school in detention. Got it. But let's say I went to pick her up, you know, after 30 minutes or an hour and I said, okay, babe, we're headed home. And the teacher says, no, 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 no. I'm keeping her. Well, what do you mean you keep, you're keeping her? I'm, I'm going to keep her because she's here. That means that I don't have to wipe down my chalkboard. That doesn't mean that I don't have to vacuum my classroom. I don't have to, you know, prepare my lesson plans and notes and clean all the tables. I'm just going to make her do all that. I'm literally going to keep her here as my servant. And she's going to do that for the rest of her life. That's my plan. How do you think my fatherly heart would respond to that? Do you think I might do something drastic in order to let my child go? You bet your buns I would. You bet your buns I would. So think of this from God's heart as a father. He wants his children out of Egypt. Initially, they were there as discipline. God allowed for that in order to purify his people. He gets it. He understands just like I would have. But now at this point, he wants them out and Pharaoh refuses to. And he's been gracious and patient. And now he's going to do something drastic because he loves his people so incredibly much. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. That's the Jewish month of Nisan. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be, must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. In other words, when you eat this lamb, be ready to travel, be ready to run, be ready to move. Why? Verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. 
This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come, and you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. In verse 11, he calls it the Lord's Passover. And this moment that God used to free His people from Egypt because He followed through. That night, He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, both humans and livestock. And a great cry arose in Egypt. And Pharaoh finally said, Get out of here. I am letting you go. And the people of Israel, the firstborn in Israel, were saved because lamb's blood was smeared on the doorposts of their houses. And this moment... This Passover is something they celebrated year after year after year, still celebrated by Jews to this day. It became absolutely critical to who they were. Listen, it's not, it wasn't just something that had happened. It was who they were. It wasn't just an event. The Passover, the Exodus, was core to their very identity. Amy and I have good friends in the Czech Republic, and I remember traveling to visit them one time, and uh, the father of one of my friends only speaks Czech, a little bit of English, and through his son, he communicated to me that he was part of the revolution in the Czech Republic that freed them from the communist regime. We walked around the streets of the Czech Republic, and he would say things like, we stood here, and the KGB stood here. He would look at plaques on the wall that commemorated those who had given their lives and say, I knew him, and I knew him, and I knew him. So one night we were in a restaurant, and I made the mistake of calling the Czech Republic Czechoslovakia. That was their name before the revolution and before they gained their liberation. And I'm telling you what, the restaurant went absolutely silent. It was like one of the moments when the record player goes, like that, you know, and silverware drops and everybody's dead silent. They're looking at me and somebody leans across the table and goes, it's the Czech Republic. Some of you might come from countries like that, places that were oppressed, possibly even enslaved. And you know that that moment when liberation comes becomes a critical part of your very identity. You know it like the back of your hand. You know the names and the places and the people and the history. This is what Passover was for the nation of Israel. Critical to their identity. So when John comes along and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, everyone in Israel, would have known what that meant. Let's consider for a moment the parallels between the Exodus, the Passover, and Jesus himself. Remember, the Passover lamb had to be perfect. Your lamb has to be without blemish, Exodus 12 says. Jesus himself was perfect. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, he's our perfect Passover lamb without blemish. The Israelites were slaves to Pharaoh. Uh, that's why they ate bitter herbs, by the way. Those, that bitterness reminded them of the bitterness of slavery. The Bible says in John 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, they were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves to sin. 
The tenth plague that God sent on the nation of Egypt was death. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of our sin is death. Uh, Did you notice that the lamb's bones, none of the bones could be broken? Kind of a strange thing. I, I would assume even Moses said, don't break any of the bones. Well, that seems weird. Well, then John 19 verse 33 rolls around. And this is what John says. The Roman soldiers came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Typically, they would break the legs of someone who was crucified uh, in order to kind of finish them off. They couldn't hold themselves up anymore to get a breath. And because their legs were broken, they would slouch over and asphyxiate themselves, essentially. But Jesus was already dead. They didn't break his legs. John follows up and he says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus, our Passover lamb, none of his bones were broken as well. And the Israelites who applied the blood to the doorposts and the frames of their houses were passed over by the angel of death. And those who have the blood of Christ on the proverbial doorpost and frames of their home, God's wrath passes over us as well. And we are given grace. This is why Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This is why 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says, For you know it wasn't with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus, our Passover lamb. Now, what does that have to do with me? Well, the blessings that the nation of Israel experienced as a result of the Passover are the very same blessings that you and I can experience now through the blood of Jesus. Those blessings are articulated in Exodus 6, verse 6. God says to Moses, Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Listen close. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. Verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. If you're taking notes, jot this first word down. Because of Jesus, our Passover lamb, we have freedom. Freedom. Just as the nation of Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians, we were enslaved to sin. But now, because of the Passover lamb, we have freedom from sin. We can live free from shame. We can live free from fear. We can live free from worry about death and what's next, we can live free in Christ, our perfect Passover lamb. Number two, God says, I will redeem you. Write that word down, redeem. Freedom, then redeem. We have redemption. God has purchased us by the blood of Christ. Peter tells us we were once not a people, now we are a people of God, purchased by the blood of Christ. 
God owns us, so to speak. We are His children. He is our Father because of the perfect Passover lamb. And third, God says, because of that first Passover, I will take you as my own people. Finally, we have belonging. God has taken us as His own people through Jesus, the Passover lamb. We have belonging. That's why we talk about it, Bayview Glen, that everybody is somebody. Everybody has a seat at God's table through the blood of our perfect Passover lamb. You have brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a perfect heavenly father. You belong here. The first exodus was a template for the greater exodus when Jesus became our perfect Passover lamb. And God grants us now a Passover that brings us out of oppression, delivers us from slavery to sin, and redeems us with His great power and takes us to be His own people. Would you pray with me? God, thank You for Your perfect Passover lamb. Thank You for this template, this lens through which we understand the role and work and power of Jesus in our life. Thank you now for these communion elements, the physical symbol that they are of a spiritual reality. We are grateful. Amen.